This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 2nd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. He went to prison for bank robbery, and while there, he became a more than competent jailhouse lawyer, ultimately getting the Supreme Court to accept multiple petitions. Today, Sean Hopwood is a professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event. This is a portion of his remarks. The framers cared a great deal about criminal justice issues. Uh, The right to a jury trial, the only right contained both in the body of the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. And when the framers started out the federal government, they were very scared about making federal criminal law. In fact, up until the 1870s, there were about 183 criminal statutes that carried criminal penalties. 1970, that had doubled, tripled, quadrupled to about 400. And does anyone want to take a guess at how many criminal statutes today can land you in federal jail or federal prison? No one knows for certain. Uh, What we do know is that the Heritage tried to get a count a few years ago and that it is over 5,000 statutes. The U.S. Congress thinks there are 5,000 things so serious that you could potentially go to prison or jail as a result. Well, how did we get there? Um, A couple reasons. We tend to think that civil law is no longer a great remedy for a lot of social problems and that we must use the heavy hammer of criminal law and things like mandatory minimums. And as a result, our federal prison population has increased 360% since 1980. The United States now has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisons. This is not something that libertarians should be very happy about, uh, and I don't imagine that most of you are. But the question is, what do we do now, and how do we move forward? Well, I'm going to talk to you about both the extent of what is called mass incarceration and the extent of what is called overcriminalization and the extent of which we over-sentence people. But I'm going to start out talking about a friend of mine. And this kind of gives you an example of what the federal government is into these days. So a friend of mine named Joshua Boyer um, was 24 years old, living in Tampa, Florida, had a substance abuse disorder and was was addicted to opiates, like so many of our fellow citizens today. And an ATF agent came to his friends and said, hey, you guys should really look at going into this stash house because these drug cartel has 24, 25 kilograms of heroin and over a half a million dollars in cash, and you guys can go cash in on this. As a result, my friend, who never actually went and started to plan the robbery, they just talked about it, they were all charged with conspiracy to possess 24 kilograms of heroin that did not exist and using a firearm. And he was sentenced after he was convicted to those 25 kilograms. Even again, though, this was a figment in some ATF's imagination. And so he received a 25-year sentence as a 24-year-old first-time offender and ultimately had to serve 17 and a half years before his 
petition for clemency was granted by President Obama. I run into cases like this every single day. Uh, the United States, we, we like to hand out sentences like it's candy, like it's Skittles. Uh, we incarcerate and, and have longer sentences than almost every other similarly situated country in the world. And this is incredibly random, and I know it's random because I get emails every week from family members of people who have gotten caught up in the criminal justice system, and the family is just furious about the unfairness and inequity and the loss of liberty. The problem is I want to get people furious before their sons or daughters or cousins or nephews get incarcerated. Uh, we have 2.3 million people in prison, and if our system was effective, I think I would still be up here arguing that liberty demands better than 2.3 Americans in federal prison and state prisons. It turns out that these aren't actually that effective at reducing crime. It turns out that the link between the incarceration rate, the number of our citizens we put in prison, and the crime rate, it's just not as strong as we thought. And part of that is we have some shared misunderstandings about the criminal justice system. Does anybody know why we impose long sentences in America? One of the primary reasons. You'll, what's that? Deterrence. That's right. You will hear our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, talk about this all the time, this idea of general deterrence. I'm going to give you a 20-year sentence. It's going to deter the rest of you from committing crimes. That assumes that people are rational actors. But who are the people that commit crimes in America the most? Young men 18 to 25. To you women in the room, are young men 18 to 25 rational actors? <laughs> I bet I don't have to cite social science to you to get you to understand that young men's brains mature at a much slower rate than women's do. Also, the people that commit crimes, people in the throes of drug addiction, alcoholism, and mental health issues. A lot of states in the past few years have shuttered mental health treatment centers, and as a result, those people do not get treatment. They eventually end up in the criminal justice system. And so this idea that if we give somebody a long sentence, it's going to deter someone else, the data tells us that's false. And the data says, actually, what does deter people is the thought of getting caught, not the consequences. And just think about if I'm wrong. Think about if someone actually sat out and thought about planning a crime, let's say a federal drug offense. What would they have to know to actually be deterred? Well, they'd have to look at the United States code, and, you know, I'm in 11 years of federal prison, I don't know anyone that actually did this ahead of time. They'd have to find the one of 5,000 federal statutes that determines the mandatory minimum and maximum punishment. And then they'd have to go to a 500-page sentencing guideline manual that, by the way, judges misapply in federal court every single day. To think that actually anyone does this is preposterous. 11 years of prison, I never met one person who knew how much time they were facing, even people that had been through the state system many times. Well, how did we get there? Again, I do not think the U.S. Congress values your liberty. If they think there are 5,000 things that are so serious that they could potentially put you in jail or prison for decades. Um, and the politics of crime. 
for a long time, we were tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime. And then we realized that maybe that doesn't work and we need to reevaluate. But the problem is our political will doesn't always match up with our social science data and with basic economic analysis. And so it's really hard to get politicians to understand that locking people up for things like marijuana does not serve the best interest of America. Uh, there are lots of things that cause problems. If there was one thing we needed to criminalize that's the biggest killer in America, it's not things like marijuana, it's high fructose corn syrup. Imagine if we had 20-year mandatory minimums for high fructose corn syrup that you're hiding in your purse or your wallet. People would think this is preposterous, right? But yet we do this for marijuana offenses. I am getting ready to represent some men who are in federal prison doing life for something that is legal in Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Massachusetts, D.C., and hopefully, if you all do what you're supposed to, a few more states in the coming elections. And you know what happened? Places like Colorado, who first did this, they said, oh my gosh, if we give people the right to choose to smoke a plant, the world will end. I go to Colorado every summer, and you know what they tell me? Sean, the world did not end because people liked liberty in Colorado all along, and they've been growing marijuana in the mountains for hundreds of years. The only thing that's really changed is people are buying it in stores and they're not getting incarcerated. We also have an issue with the sentences. On uh, federal system, it's really bad because we have lots of mandatory minimum sentences. And the federal government says that we need these because we need to be able to convince people to plead guilty. As if that is the only and primary goal of the criminal justice system. Again, the framers thought a right to a jury trial was pretty important. And I think they would be shocked to learn. Anyone want to take a guess at how many cases in federal court actually go to trial? 3%. 3% of people choose to exercise their right to a jury trial. Well, why is that? Well, I'll give you an example. So as Trevor said, I, uh, before I became a law professor, I had a different profession. Um, but he was wrong about the bank robberies. It wasn't one, it was five. Um, and it's something I regret every day for the rest of my life. But what I saw in prison was cases like Adam Clausen. Adam Kloss is a friend of mine. He is serving time in federal prison right now. He committed nine robberies of massage parlors in and around Philadelphia. The only difference between his case and my case is I pled guilty. He exercised his right to a jury trial. I had a good defense counsel. He did not. I had a reasonable prosecutor. He did not. I received a sentence of 12 years and three months in federal prison. And Adam Clausen received a sentence of 213 years in federal prison. His outdate is December 1st, 2185. And I should add that no one was physically hurt in any of those crimes. Why did he get the sentence? Well, I see sentences like this all the time, and most of the time it is due to people exercising, again, their Sixth Amendment 
fundamental right to have a jury of their peers to decide their guilt or innocence. We have lost our jury trial right because of the trial penalty, but we've also lost it in other ways. For many years, juries were told about the punishments of the crime that the defendant was charged with. And when legislatures would do things like our current one does and pass really long mandatory minimum sentences or even worse punishments for crimes, and juries thought that this was irrational, what did they do? They were told about the punishment and then they acquitted, they nullified. We have lost that because now in courts across America, juries can't even be told about the punishment. There was a federal judge a few years ago who quizzed juries after they had found someone guilty and asked them what sentence they should impose. And what he discovered was that the jury, American citizens, would have imposed a sentence a third of the time than that recommended by the United States sentencing guidelines. It's no wonder now that we have 2.3 million people in prison. But, uh, as I like to say, uh, criminal justice reform is the last bipartisan issue in America. Uh, there aren't many of them left. Uh, we have an opportunity to reverse course and re-examine. And one of the things we really need to do is bring in things like economics and behavioral science. We know so much more about how human beings behave, but you would never know that by some of our criminal justice practices. Whether it's this idea of deterrence or this idea of incapacitation, that we're gonna send you to prison maybe for 20 years based on a not so great guess about what your risk of danger is when you get out. 2.3 million people in prison. United States has the world's second largest incarceration rate. We're only behind one country, the seashells. And they have a couple hundred million fewer people than we do. This is not something that we want to lead the world in. And it's something that I'm hopeful that groups like Cato and other groups who really value liberty will really get behind. Uh, I work with people at Cato, Clark Neely and Trevor Burris and Jonathan Blanks, and I'm proud to stand with them. People often ask me, well, why are you uh, a libertarian, Sean? And I say, it's not that hard to figure out. Conservatives care a lot about regulating morality. Liberals care a great deal about chasing after equality. When you have had your liberty taken for 11 years, what do you think you value the most? Yes, liberty. It's not that hard to figure out. We have an opportunity in the coming months um, to pass a bill called the First Step Act. It is a bill that will reform the federal prison system and a bill that will hopefully reduce some of the worst sentences that we have uh, currently in the United States Code. We have criminal laws in 51 titles of the United States Code today. And I tell you, and not glibly, that you have all violated federal criminal law at some point in your life, probably unknowingly. It's even worse when you think about Congress tends to pass a lot of these statutes today without any mens rea requirement, which means strict liability crimes. You violate the crime, whether you know about it or not, you can go to prison. And not for months, but for years and decades. Think about that. 
you have all violated federal criminal law. You want me to tell you the ways how? If you've omitted a material term of something that you sold on eBay or Craigslist, you have committed wire fraud and are subject to 20 years in federal prison. If you have created a fake Twitter or Facebook account, some people have been charged under the Computer Abuse and Fraud Act for unauthorized use of a computer. If you have smoked a joint of marijuana, you have broken federal law, even if you are in a state that says and has made the wise policy decision to decriminalize marijuana. We know that 65 million Americans every month use illegal drugs that are criminalized by the federal government. And if you believe, as I do, that we should not be in the business of making large swaths of the American public federal felons, um, then you can understand why this is a problem. It's a problem for a couple reasons. One is, when we think about American criminal justice system, we only tend to think about the amount of time someone spends in prison. I'm telling you, when someone gets out of prison, it is a new punishment. Collateral consequences, three to 4,000 collateral consequences of felony conviction. There's a reason why I teach in DC but not live in Virginia. Anyone wanna take a guess at why I don't live in Virginia? I can't vote in this state. Even though I am licensed to practice law in the state of Washington and DC, and I'm licensed and admitted in six different circuit courts, I had an oral argument in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals yesterday in Richmond, I cannot vote. When I clerked for Judge Brown at the DC Circuit, which is you know, widely considered the second most important court in the country, uh, an apartment complex in Virginia denied me and my family an apartment. I remember the phone call. They called and said, hey, Mr. Hopwood, you have a felony conviction. We can't rent you an apartment. And I said, well, I understand that, but I'm soon to be a lawyer and I clerk for a pretty important federal judge. And they said, well, I don't know what clerking means, but <laughs> we're still not gonna give you an apartment. And so these collateral consequences follow Americans everywhere. Uh, it's one of the things I'm most proud about the Institute of Justice for most recently, who is going after and challenging some of the occupational licensing schemes that tend to lock out people with felony convictions forever. We have thousands of these things. Uh, the law is one of them. In some states, if you have a felony conviction, <laughs> if you have a felony conviction, you can never practice law. But even that is changing because of groups like the Institute for Justice and Cato. I represented a woman last fall named Tara Simmons, and she has one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. Probably the worst childhood you can imagine. Parents highly addicted to drugs, committing crimes with her as a toddler in the back seat. At 13, the sexual abuse and drug use in her house is so bad that she leaves and is homeless. At 13 and a half, she is sold into prostitution by a street gang. At 14, she is pregnant to a man 26 years her senior who promptly abandons her the minute he finds out she's pregnant. And then she has 20 years of sexual assault, drug addiction, and in and out of prison twice. And then six years ago, she gets her entire life turned around, decides to get clean, and she decides she wants to go, of all places, law school. 
And so I help her fill out the application. She gets accepted to Seattle U. She goes on, does five public service internships there. She graduates from honors. She's awarded the graduating student award for the entire university, the Dean's Medal for the best law school student. And when she graduates, she's the first formerly incarcerated person and first Washington resident to get the very prestigious Skadden Fellowship. And when she applies for the bar, she has 50 members of the Washington State Bar who wrote letters of recommendation, three state court judges, and the prosecutor of King County. And then she goes before her hearing to say whether or not she has the character and fitness necessary to practice law, as if all lawyers who have that law license have the character and fitness necessary to practice law. Um, and what they say is, by a vote to six to three, no, that she doesn't. And that six years of pretty exemplary conduct. This is a woman who had been appointed to two state commissions by the governor of Washington, that she did not have the current character and fitness. We appealed her decision to the Washington Supreme Court, who hadn't taken a character and fitness case in 37 years. And to our surprise, they granted full review. And I argued the case in November. And basically, my argument was this. Character is not static, people change, and the law should recognize this, especially the law that should allow someone to have the liberty to pick and choose the profession they want to and not be barred forever, especially when we want people to come out of prison and go into professions and get back on their feet and not commit new crimes. Argument's over, I get on a plane, and I'm headed home and my wife texts and says, hey, Tara just left a voice message and said you won the case. And I said, that's impossible. Uh, courts don't issue same-day opinions, especially <laughs> state Supreme Courts. As with many things in life, I was wrong. Two hours after the court oral argument was over, they entered a unanimous opinion saying that Tara Simmons had the character and fitness necessary to practice law. She took the bar exam in February. In March, the 33-page opinion, opinion came out that basically said, listen, as a profession, we have excluded women and people on the basis of race and nationality and political beliefs and sexual orientation, and we've got to stop. We have to look at people as individuals and determine whether or not they are worthy of becoming a lawyer. And then in June, I flew out to Seattle and watched Tara Simmons get sworn in as an attorney Why three of those justices of the Washington Supreme Court sat in attendance. And if I have it my way, things like occupational licensing schemes are about to get challenged in lots of courts all over the country. And I hope to join Institute for Justice and groups like Cato because this isn't just a liberty issue. It also happens to be good public policy. Because when people come out of prison feel like they can have upward mobility and their liberty back and are returning citizens, it turns out they tend to commit new crimes a lot less. It's not a hard thing to understand. Um, as I told our attorney general one day, if we treat people a little better when they're in prison, they might come out and not do the bad things you think they're going to do. And if we put people and warehouse them for 10 or 20 years for nonviolent drug offenses, and we give them nothing in the way of rehabilitation or job skills, and then we kick them out into the world, 
why do we expect a miracle to happen? And then when they fail, we say, oh, you were evil always to begin with. Tell you, most of the people I saw in prison were not evil. They were just people that for whatever reason had committed really bad decisions. Some of them grew up in circumstances much different than I did. But almost all of them had the potential to change and the potential for rehabilitation. They just needed some help and they needed some assistance and they needed, when they got out of prison, to get their liberty back. And so I'm hopeful that groups like Cato and others will join together to rectify what I think is the greatest human rights disaster in our country today, which is the fact that the United States leads the world in incarcerating our citizens. This is not something that this group of people should find appealing. Um, and I don't imagine any of you do. And so I would encourage you, to the extent you can, to help with this because we will never get groups like the US Congress to change policy without an outcry of public support from all sorts of Americans. And with that, I'll quit talking and take some questions. Thanks for having me. John Hopwood is a professor of law at the Georgetown University Law Center. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Cato Club 200 event in September. Subscribe to this and other Cato podcasts at iTunes, Google Podcasts, and many other places. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.